Hi there, I'm Travis, and this is the Why Is That Podcast. This week we have a special episode in honor of Canada Day. If you're unaware, Canada Day is celebrated each year on July 1st and commemorates the confederation of the former colonies into a single dominion called Canada. In essence, it commemorates the creation of Canada and thus celebrates all things Canadian. Today's episode specifically is going to be dedicated to why Canada is called Canada and how it became the official name of the country. There is a classic joke that explains it. I heard the joke years ago, and I have no idea of the origin, so if you know, please tweet me at whyisthatpod or message me on Facebook because I would love to know. Okay, here goes the joke. In a cold, distant past of the white north, the most notable individuals of what would one day become Canada came together to choose a name for their new country. The man who would be the first prime minister took this gathered that they had decided to name the country by pulling letters out of a bag. Sir John A. Macdonald lifted the bag and shook it. He held it out first to the greatest of them in attendance. Wayne Gretzky reached into the bag. He read the letter out loud. We gotta see, eh? The crowd cheered and the bag was passed to William Shatner. He pulled out a letter and said, Looks like we have a N. Eh? The crowd cheered again, and the bag was passed for a final time. Drake took the bag and announced to the crowd the final letter. We have a D, eh? And just like that, the gathered group chanted the letters together. C-A-N-A-D-A, Canada. I've always enjoyed long-form jokes with a very small punchline. It is one of the reasons I'm not allowed to tell jokes at home. In my opinion, the real story of the name origin is even better. It goes back to the days of the French exploration of the lands that would one day become Canada and includes their contact with the indigenous population. First, we must introduce the St. Lawrence Iroquois. The St. Lawrence Iroquois are said to have settled along the shores of the St. Lawrence River in the modern-day areas of southern Quebec, southern Ontario, and the northern parts of the state of New York, somewhere around the year 1000 CE. They are said to be distinct from the more famous Iroquois Confederacy, but due to the tribe's disappearance in the late 16th century, we have to rely on archaeological evidence and oral traditions from other indigenous and native populations to make that assertion. The reason for the disappearance appears to be a combination of warfare against the Mohawk nation of Haudenosaunee, climate change, wars against the Algonquin tribes, and exposure to European diseases. The St. Lawrence Iroquois are important to our tale due to their interaction with the French explorer Jacques Cartier. Jacques Cartier was born in 1491 on the eve of the European expansion into the New World of the Americas. France did not get started on colonial expansion and exploration in the Americas until either 1523 or 1524. The Florentine explorer Giovanni da Verrazzano was able to convince the French king Francis I to sponsor his expedition to explore the Atlantic coast of North America between Florida and New Brunswick. It is possible that our explorer friend Jacques Cartier took part in these voyages, but we cannot verify that assertion one way or the other. Either way, the journey was more about exploration and attempting to map routes to areas that could be claimed by the French in the future. Giovanni's voyages were not fully backed by King Francis I, and it would take another decade before the king would fully commit to the venture of exploring the New World. The commitment to exploration occurred in 1534 after Cartier was introduced to the king by way of a bishop named Jean Le Venier. 
King Francis I decided to commission Cartier to discover a western passage to the markets of Asia in order to set up a more direct trading route for French merchants. The other goal of the commission can be found in this quote of the commission. Cartier was to discover certain islands and lands where it is said that a great quantity of gold and other precious things are to be found. On the first voyage, Cartier found and mapped the Gulf of St. Lawrence. It was on this voyage that he first encountered the St. Lawrence Iroquois. This encounter was fairly peaceful until Cartier chose to plant a 10-meter cross that said, Long live the King of France, thereby claiming the region for France. While the Iroquois could not read French, they clearly understood the purpose of the actions, but before they could do anything, Cartier's men kidnapped two of the sons of one of the chieftains. He would return to France with these two captives before using the two boys as guides and translators on his future journeys. Cartier's second voyage to New France started in the year 1535. This one was a bit more directed as he headed straight back to the Gulf of St. Lawrence, with the intention to journey up the St. Lawrence River. As Cartier made his way inland, he met some of the locals and inquired a route to a settlement in the area. The indigenous inhabitants directed Cartier to the village of Stadacona, which is approximately where present-day Quebec City is located. Instead of using the name Stadacona to direct Cartier to the village, the St. Lawrence Iroquois instead used a word that approximately translates to village or settlement. The word was Kanata, K-A-N-A-T-A. Cartier recorded the word with the modern spelling of Canada. He further misinterpreted the meaning of the word Kanata and thought that the indigenous peoples were telling him that the area around the St. Lawrence was called Canada. In Cartier's maps, he would refer to the area as Canada and refer to the natives as Canadians. As the French started to colonize the area, it became officially a part of New France, but the area around the St. Lawrence River was known as Canada. New France settlers in the area were called Canadians, and this is why the Montreal National Hockey League team is known as the Montreal Canadiens. However, those settlers were also known as Les Habitants, which is why the team is also sometimes referred to as the Habs. After the British won the Seven Years' War, also known as the French and Indian War, the British took possession of the French colonies in modern-day Canada. The Francophone inhabitants were justifiably, let's say, nervous about their new royal overlords. They did not want their rights, privileges, and in general their way of life to change just because the French had lost a war against the British. Remarkably, the British government was actually receptive to these concerns and passed laws or decrees to guarantee a degree of continued autonomy. Specifically, I'm referring to the Quebec Act that was passed in 1774 and included a guaranteed free practice of the Catholic faith, restored use of the French civil law for private law, and expanded their territory. The Quebec Act was one of the so-called intolerable acts that led to the American Revolution, but it was rather popular in Quebec. By the way, Quebec comes from the Algonquin word Québec, K-E-B-E-C, meaning where the river narrows and initially only referred to the area where the St. Lawrence River narrows to a cliff-lined gap. The French explorer Samuel de Champlain chose the name Quebec for his colonial outpost and administrative seat for the colony of New France. From that colonial outpost grew the city of Quebec. Obviously, after the British won the territory, they could not continue calling the area New France, so the Royal Proclamation of 1763 renamed it to the province of Quebec. So you know how every four years during the American election season, you always hear people saying, if candidate X wins, I'm moving to Canada. Well, after the Americans won the Revolutionary War in 1783 and broke away from the British crown, a lot of people actually went through with that threat. 
It is estimated that approximately 10,000 English-speaking settlers moved out of the United States and into the province of Quebec. They are often known as the Loyalists. Even more Loyalists moved to the Atlantic Canada, which is how New Brunswick was split off from Nova Scotia. Prior to the mass U.S. exodus, the province of Quebec had an estimated population of around 145,000 French speakers, mostly living in the eastern half of the province, whereas the new English-speaking arrivals mostly lived in the western half of the province. In order to effectively govern the area, the British Crown passed the Constitutional Act of 1791 and formally split the province into two parts, a French-speaking with French civil law eastern half and an English-speaking with English common law western half. Both also received a representative legislative assembly. The act also changed the name of the province to Upper Canada and Lower Canada. Upper Canada was the western half, today southern Ontario, and Lower Canada was the eastern half, today southern Quebec. Upper referred to being up the St. Lawrence River, and Lower referring to down the river, similar to Upper and Lower Egypt if you have studied ancient Egypt. The next half century was characterized by a high level of immigration, it is said that over 960,000 arrived from Britain between 1815 and 1850. However, with the growth of population, a need for responsible government was also required and sometimes agitated for. The British North America Act of 1840, commonly known as the Act of Union of 1840, was enacted with the goal of meeting that call. Well, to meet that call and attempt to silence the French speakers of Lower Canada by bringing them back into union with Upper Canada. The act merged the two and formed the singular province of Canada with one legislative body. I can't really say that this act worked, but it did provide a new age. Eventually, the politicians of the province of Canada, along with the provinces of Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, started to advocate for independence, or at least more independence. There were multiple reasons that prompted these colonies to want to formally become their own nation. Some included a need to change the political structure to something that would work locally, the population expansion, the economic opportunity of being united with one another, and a few responses to American policy shifts along with witnessing the horrors of the American Civil War. All of this resulted in several constitutional conventions to write up a new constitution for Canada. The Constitution was passed in the Constitution Act of 1867, and the colonies of Canada, Nova Scotia, and New Brunswick became a confederation with an official name of the Dominion of Canada. This officially happened on July 1st, 1867, and is the reason why Canada Day is celebrated on July 1st, as it is basically Canadian Independence Day. The Dominion of Canada split the province of Canada into the provinces of Quebec and Ontario, and together with Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, the four of them became the initial provinces of Canada. Canada has since grown to include ten provinces and three territories. However, you will notice that I said it was called the Dominion of Canada. The title of Dominion is an important one. The Dominion piece meant that Canada was independent in terms of their domestic policies, but the United Kingdom still held control of its foreign policy. Canada would be the first former British Empire holding to become a Dominion, but it became fairly common afterwards. In fact, Canada Day was actually called Dominion Day from 1867 to 1982. Scholars generally point to the two world wars as the arenas for which Canada slowly but surely gained more complete independence from the United Kingdom. This was due to its emergence onto the world stage. The Canadian army was not as large as others in the world wars, but it still played a very vital role in the Allied victories of both wars. Unlike the United States, Canada was involved in both world wars from the beginning. 
The Battle of Vimy Ridge in the First World War is an event of great significance for Canada, as it is often seen as a symbol of the nation coming of age. In 1919, Canada even joined the League of Nations independently from the United Kingdom. The Statue of Westminster of 1931 largely ended the pieces we would have recognized as Dominion, as it limited legislative authority of the British Parliament over Canada, which legally allowed Canada to be fully self-governing, though the British Parliament still had the power to amend the Canadian Constitution at the request of the Parliament of Canada. The Canadian poet and founder of the New Democratic Party, Frank Scott, theorized that Canada's status as a simple Dominion country officially ended when the Canadian Parliament declared war on Germany seven days after the United Kingdom did in what became World War II. Declaring war is a very massive foreign relations move, especially on an enemy as powerful as Germany was in 1939. Canada fought admirably all throughout the Second World War and established itself as an independent member of the Allied cause. This showing earned Canada a place as an original independent member of the United Nations. In fact, Canada was the seventh country listed on the joint declaration that established the United Nations, seventh of 26 nations. However, despite that honor, Canada was still officially dominion and did not have full control of their own constitution. The flag of Canada at the time of Confederation in 1867 had been the Union Jack, known, as the, known in Canada as the Royal Union Flag. However, as early as 1868, under the first Canadian Prime Minister, Sir John A. Macdonald, an unofficial flag known as the Red Ensign was also used. The Red Ensign had the Union Jack in the canton, and the Red Field was defaced by the Canadian Coat of Arms. The Red Ensign is still flown at some governmental buildings today, and at the Vimy Ridge Memorial, a memorial in France that honors the role Canada played in winning the Battle of Vimy Ridge that I mentioned earlier. At the memorial, a French flag, a Canadian maple leaf, and the red ensign all fly together. If you listened to our last episode where we discussed the importance of flags as a national symbol, the continued use of the British Union Jack as a national flag of Canada and as a piece of the red ensign should help explain how much the people of Canada identify with the United Kingdom. Before we discuss the last piece of why Canada is called Canada, I want to stay on this flag digression for a moment longer. The red maple leaf flag is one of my favorite flag designs in the world, and it is only about 53 years old at this point, as it officially became the Canadian flag on February 15, 1965. For those of you unfamiliar with the maple leaf flag, the colors are red and white. The white forms a square in the center of the flag that takes up approximately one half of the flag. Then the outside strips are both red and take up approximately one quarter of the flag each. In the middle of the flag is the primary symbol, a large red stylized 11-pointed maple leaf. Contrary to popular belief, the 11 points of the maple leaf do not represent the 10 provinces and 3 territories of Canada, with one star for each province and one for the territories. Nor does it stand for the governments, 10 provincial and 1 federal. In fact, it means nothing. I'll explain in a moment. The Maple Leaf's origin comes from the Great Canadian Flag Debate. It started after Prime Minister Lester B. Pearson proposed his plans for a new flag in the House of Commons. Pearson is also the namesake of the Toronto airport and was a Nobel Peace Prize winner. A pretty bitter debate followed that included a split populace and opposition from the former Conservative Prime Minister John Diefenbaker, who was also known as Deef the Chief. Eventually, a special flag committee was formed and they accepted entries for design ideas. 3,541 entries were received and debated. 2,136 contained maple leaves, 
408 contain Union Jacks, 389 contain Beavers, and 359 contain Fleurs de Lis. The Fleur de Lis being a stylized lily flower, one that is commonly associated with Catholicism and France. So you might draw that those submissions were likely from the province of Quebec. The maple leaf flag we know and love today was submitted by George Stanley and quickly became a finalist against Pearson's preferred pennant design. As Pearson was a liberal, it was thought that the liberal MPs would back the pennant, so the conservatives, some of who did not want a new flag at all, put their support behind Stanley's maple leaf, but the liberals, who did want a new flag, outmaneuvered the conservatives by also supporting the maple leaf. The maple leaf won the debate without a single vote against in the flag committee. A month later, the flag was approved by Parliament in a vote of 163 to 78, and two months after that, the maple leaf was officially flown for the first time in front of Peace Tower on Ottawa's Parliament Hill on February 15, 1965. The original maple leaf design had 13 points, but when John Reed made a prototype flag with the design, it did not quite look right, and it was decided that the design was too busy at the base. With that input, St. Cyr modified the design by removing two points at the bottom of the maple leaf, and it was agreed that it looked much better afterwards. So despite the want for the leaven to symbolize something, sadly it does not. And before you point out that the original 13 points might have symbolized the 10 provinces and 3 territories of Canada, it should be remembered that in 1965, when the maple leaf was adopted, Canada only had 2 territories. None of it would not be split away from the Northwest Territories until April 1st, 1999. So that is the rather neat story of the Canadian flag. The final piece of the Canadian story surrounds the final patriation of Canada, which means the process of full Canadian sovereignty. As I mentioned earlier, the Statute of Westminster of 1931 provided Canada most of the powers to be an independent country, but the United Kingdom still retained the power to amend the Canadian Constitution. In 1981, the Parliament of Canada requested that the Parliament of the United Kingdom would amend the Constitution to remove the power invested in Canada herself. The United Kingdom agreed to do so and in March 1982 passed the Canada Act of 1982. Then, on April 17, 1982, Queen Elizabeth II and Prime Minister of Canada Pierre Elliott Trudeau, yes, Justin's father, signed Canada's Proclamation of the Constitution Act of 1982. This officially allowed Canada formal authority over its constitution and represented the final step to full sovereignty. This also ended the period of time where Canada was known as the Dominion of Canada, and henceforth it has been simply known as Canada, although the legalities of the name are a different debate. The passage of this act is also when the July 1st holiday stopped being referred to as Dominion Day and officially became Canada Day. Canada does continue to recognize Queen Elizabeth II as their monarch, and it is one of the Commonwealth countries, but despite that, the country remains wholly independent. So that represents the story of how Canada went from being an Iroquoian word for settlement to the name of the entire country. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode of the Why Is That podcast. If so, please subscribe to the show using your favorite podcast app, whether that is Acast, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Podbean, Pocket Cast, iHeartRadio, or wherever podcasts are streamed. You may find the show on Twitter and Facebook at Why Is That Pod, or if you have any questions or concerns, you may email me at whyisthatpod at gmail.com. Sources for today's episode include Snopes, the Canadian Encyclopedia, Archives Canada, A Traveler's History of Canada by Robert Bothwell. Okay, so grab some maple syrup and some Timbits so you can celebrate Canada Day in style. Thank you for listening to the Why Is That Podcast. Until next time, cheers.